Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. In today's episode, we start things off with a recap of Season 2, Episode 1, also simply known as Part 11. This is the first of 10 episodes of Your Honor on Showtime, the Brian Cranston crime thriller. After a brief recap, I bring in Sona with her commentary as well. And in that conversation, we also break down the new trailer for the Yellow Jackets series, which is coming back in March, also on Showtime. And then I round things out with my sister, Celia, joins the podcast to discuss the film The Menu, which just premiered after a successful theatrical run, and now a quick premiere on HBO, and it's become a big hit there. So many of you are probably catching up on the film. Definitely positives there, regardless of my overall opinion on the film. So stay tuned for that conversation. And stay tuned later this weekend. These episodes are going to be pretty close together, considering both of these shows premiere at approximately the same time. But we will also be discussing the premiere episode of The Last of Us on HBO Max. And that episode will be out Sunday night, Monday, remains to be seen. And we'll also be covering that show for the next 10 weeks. We've gotten some very interesting feedback from many of you with our year-end episode. Some of you providing your favorites, favorite shows and movies you've seen this year. And we'd love to get your feedback. So if you feel like it, we will probably have a mailbag episode reading some of those emails in the near future. So if you'd like to be part of that, please do send us your favorites of the year. Anything you'd like to shed some additional light on. And the email address, as always, needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. Okay, on with the show. So here we are. Your Honor, Season 2, Episode 1. A very successful, although critically mixed reaction to the first season of the show a show that I had my issues with, but was curious to see how they were going to solve these problems with season two. And of course, always a fan of Cranston and also Michael Stuhlbarg in this other primary role. Oh, and for all of you catching this now, you've probably caught that trailer for season two of Yellow Jackets, which is coming in March. And we will definitely be covering that. That will be our next week-to-week recap show. We kick things off with a very concise and efficient recap of last season. Much more concise than our coverage last week. (laughs) But if you want a little more detail, do check out our previous episode. Interesting to note that I was very curious to see how are they going to address some of these undeveloped or underdeveloped themes from last season. Adam's relationship with his teacher, which seemed to be a red herring, as well as his mother's murder. Something else that has not been addressed. Those are the two most glaring loose ends from last season. And of course, as I had speculated, they've been dumped and will probably never be addressed again this season, which all in all is probably the right decision. Very quickly in this episode, we discover that Adam is indeed dead, just to close the loop on that, because it wasn't explicitly made clear. It looked like he was going to die, but he was alive at the last moments of last season. I guess they wanted to keep that door open. He is indeed dead. The episode kicks off, we see a very bedraggled Cranston playing Michael Desiato. He's on a hunger strike in prison. Why is he in prison? We'll find out soon enough. It's sometime later, I would guess about a year. And we have a pretty grisly force-feeding scene here. He's been losing weight, and they give him a feeding tube right down his nose. Cranston does a great job of selling how uncomfortable this is. And we immediately flash back to the aftermath of the shooting that concluded last season. Eugene, the shooter, is on the run, and the Baxters are on a warpath. They, of course, know that Carlo was the real target of this assassination attempt, and Fia, on top of everything else, is also traumatized. And, of course, was in the line of fire. Jimmy Baxter, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, reaches out to Big Mo, the head of Desire, the the gang. She says she did not sanction this assassination, and she does not want this thing to escalate. Young men can be rash. Stuhlbarg says, well, you need to have your men under control. You take responsibility for their actions. Despite the threat, he really does not want this thing to escalate. Gina, played by Hope Davis, the Baxter matriarch, she has other plans. She does her usual Lady Macbeth thing in a creepy moment with her son. And of course, six her weapon of choice, Carlo, after Eugene. In the present day, Olivia Delmont, played by Rosie Perez, from Hackensack, New Jersey, this character is, represent New Jersey. I'm always happy to see Rosie Perez, by the way comes to make Michael an offer in prison. They'll let him go if they can help them get close to the Baxters. She has a plan. We don't know what it is yet, but this is going to be the plot driver of the season. At this moment, Michael's pretty unmotivated. Not much motivation here for a suicidal man. 
In the flashback, we had seen that Michael, after the shooting, had spilled all of the beans. There's no beans left in that can. To Detective Nancy Costello, played by Amy Landecker. We also see that Olivia was there playing the confession when the DA and detective met and said, hey, if you want to put him in jail, you can put Michael in jail for tax evasion if you want to. But this confession will be sealed because she already has a plan to recruit Michael in the future. And if the Baxters thinks he's a snitch, they obviously will not let him close again. Super spy Carlo rolls up on Desire's home base and is immediately taken hostage. Turns out a baseball cap is not really the best disguise. Meanwhile, Eugene also gets caught. He shows up at his lawyer's apartment or office building, not sure where he is, but the gang is out looking everywhere for him, and they do find him. So Big Mo at this moment has both Eugene and Carlo. Hmm, what to do? Charlie, played by Isaiah Whitlock Jr., still in the past, gets news that the shooting has hurt his poll numbers. Crime always hurts a Democratic candidate. His advisor mentions that they need to close this case quick if he wants to bounce back in the polls. Charlie's pretty angry. He doesn't only want to think about the polls. After all, he did love Adam, his godson. There's an interesting scene between Sophia and her father, asking how can he be so comfortable with the family business? That mom is different, Carlo's different, but dad, you're like me. A couple of interesting things here. I was not aware that Gina was actually the connection to this crime family lineage. I had presumed that it was Jimmy. This is interesting character shading, and it adds another layer of tension here. He needs to perform this to his daughter. He wants to pretend to be like her, but we know deep down inside how ruthless he can be. Speaking of trying not to let that mask slip, he gets a call from Mo, with Fia still in the car. He probably wants to go full gangster on this conversation, but can't because he has to maintain that pretense. Big Mo says, I have your son. Remember how you're supposed to keep track of all of your men and you're responsible for their actions? Touche, Big Mo, touche. Big Mo then drops off Carlo in front of his house as a sign of good faith and trying to keep this thing from escalating. Gina, of course, immediately wants to send Carlo back again. That worked out great last time, Mom. Michael, meanwhile, reminds them that revenge is a dish best served cold. There's a reason for that saying. What's his plan? TBD. Present tense, Fia goes to visit Michael in prison. She wants to know if Adam really loved her. She doesn't know if she's truly in love with him. Was this a real romance or is she just fixated on its tragic ending? Michael does say that he doesn't know. He tries to be polite, but then eventually he just wants out of there. Does not want to continue this conversation and tells her to stay away. She has a secret, however, and you have only one guess as to what that secret is approximately one year after last season. And you're right. Michael does step into the sunlight here for a minute, maybe appreciating being outside again, finally, after self-imposed hunger strike. But he does have plans for one more suicide attempt via rodeo. And yes, this is true. Angola prison down in Louisiana does have a prisoner rodeo open to the public. That's entertainment. This is probably the most disturbing moment in the show, realizing that this is actually true. There's also prison rodeos in Texas as well, and probably in other states. So as we approach the end of the episode, Olivia has secured Michael's release. Michael still does not want to help, but he does respond to blackmail. Turns out that Michael blabbered all over the place, once again, spilled all the beans in the aftermath of Adam's death, and he's doomed Charlie just because Charlie tried to help him out. And this legitimately is a solid motivation for him to come out of his stupor. He's thrown his friend, his closest friend, under the bus, someone who was simply trying to help him out. And with so little to lose, the last thing he could do is try to be noble enough to defend his friend. Oh, and by the way, in case I forgot to mention it, Charlie, played by Isaiah Whitlock Jr., is now mayor. So he's got even more to lose. In flashback, once again, little Mo has let Eugene go. He just feels bad about everything that's happened to him. And he puts him on a bus. Where he's headed to? Not sure. And this, of course, will be important to the plot going forward. Charlie and his fixer from the police department meet with Big Mo. Big Mo had promised to bring them Eugene. She unfortunately cannot, but says, you know what? You can still close this case. Here's some of Eugene's personal effects. This fixer heads to the morgue and looks for a John Doe that fits the bill. The only real candidate really doesn't look like Eugene. But hey, if you shoot his face off, it's good enough. They leave the body somewhere where it can be found. And the notifications go around to the Baxters and then to the public that the case is closed. The gang apparently has killed Eugene. 
Everyone seems pretty placated by this, but interestingly, if Eugene should ever resurface, and you know he is, this is going to make big trouble for everybody, including Charlie. As the episode ends, Michael, doing his best Bob Ross impression, is out of prison, and we find out, dun dun dun, Fia had a baby. Not a surprise to anyone. And then we see some scenes upcoming in the season, what to expect. We see that Charlie is really having the screws pressed to him. He's getting pressured from many sides. In a lot of ways, he's become the center of this tension and suspense in the same way that Michael was trapped by his decisions last season. Also, what is Olivia's master plan? She obviously had some thought process that Michael could get closer to the Baxters and there will be some gotcha moment in the future. And I think really the satisfaction of the season really depends on how that plan plays out or does not. In the season trailer, she says, if you do this correctly, every single person will get exactly what they deserve, including you. So what does that exactly mean? Almost sounds like a threat, to be honest, because Michael in this whole situation probably doesn't deserve much positive. Although he may find a new reason to live now that he has a grandson and may want to keep that grandson out of the clutches of the Baxter crime syndicate. So how do I feel about all this? I like this. This was entertaining. I think it sets things up in an interesting way. I'm very much looking forward to the Stuhlbarg versus Cranston show. The rest of the cast, all full of great performers as well. Maybe underused a little bit last season, but here's an opportunity to see them in action again and maybe in a more satisfying way, especially someone like Hope Davis. And there's some really real risks here. You have a final season of the show. They're not going to drag this out or give it a spinoff. I like the idea that anybody's at risk here. Charlie may have to clean house and tie up loose ends and become completely ruthless. Cranston may have to sacrifice himself, and he's suicidal at this point. So whatever it takes to save his grandchild, it might be his life itself that's at risk here. And Eugene is a total wild card. If he resurfaces, he puts everybody in danger. He's a threat to Big Mo, who claimed he was gone. And how did he get away? He's a threat to Charlie, obviously. Supposedly, this case is closed. If the Baxters really think he's dead, he's a threat to pop up somewhere unexpected and still take another shot at Carlo. So all interesting setup for the season. 10 episodes? Seems like a long season to me, but I'm sure there will be twists along the way. Still interested? And we'll touch base next week and see how things progress. So, Sona, before we get into the discussion of Your Honor, you also checked out the trailer for Yellow Jackets, right? Which just dropped this very week, I guess, as part of this premiere episode. I did. I did. It's just a teaser. It's only a minute and change long. But what did you think? I thought this was, for me, made me very excited for the show. I thought the trailer looks good. You know, I'm beginning to be concerned about my own uh, memory because, (laughs) you know, I see people and I'm like Juliet Lewis. I was like, wow, I I can't remember what her childhood character looks like right now. Mm -hmm. She had like blondish hair. Remember she had like streaks or something in it? Yeah. She had different colored hair in that as a young. Yeah, kind of. Um, But I'll get on top of it. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, though, I think the trailer was well done. I am looking forward to season two. Actually, I think more than I expected to be. Would have liked to see a little more Melanie Linsky in the trailer. Yeah, surprising, right? Yeah. A couple of interesting things there. We see Elijah Wood there. Mm-hmm. And she made a movie with Elijah Wood called I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. And it's directed, it's a comedy crime thriller. Macon Blair is the director and writer who wrote Green Room, which is a movie that I recommended here a while back. Excellent movie if nobody's seen that one. And it stars uh, Melanie Linsky and Elijah Wood. And they have a very interesting camaraderie there. But I guess they became friends on the set of that film. And here he is now as a regular on this show. And it's very entertaining for him to say there at the end of the trailer, going like, yeah, your friends have very complicated mm-hmm. relationships. Cults and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What may be enthusiastic about it, the trailer itself, is the hint here that, you know, we speculated in the first season. And anybody who wants to check out our coverage, do check down the check out those Yellow Jackets episodes. I have seen people downloading them recently. What I found interesting was that there was a a possibility that you could say the whole thing was mass psychosis, and even this cult hinted at later in the show could purely be founded by members of these survivors as well. 
Yeah, for sure. Could just be that. In other words, all of this is just a lot of hysteria. And I thought that was kind of a limit there if there wasn't a mystery behind this. I don't mind if it was purely psychological, but it would kind of cheapen the show to invest so much in this mystery that doesn't have a payoff. And what I like to see here in the trailer is that obviously the psychology of the women continues to be the center of the storyline, but it looks like that mythology is going to get more complex. They're going to flesh that out in this season, which I, I'm looking forward to. Speaking of fleshing it out, I'm still worried about the cannibalism aspect yes, here. Yes, yes. Although this is very light on cannibalism so far. On that very show. light <laughs> on cannibalism. <laughs> Another thing that I had speculated on, and I don't even know if you could see this in the trailer or if it's something that's just been hinted at in the casting uh, rumors around the show. I was hoping that it wouldn't only be these four women, that there were more survivors out there and that there have been cast women of yes, more famous actresses I heard that. Yes. as adult versions of these characters, which I won't spoil here if you want to stay unsullied about all that. But just to let you know that more of those girls survived, there are going to be adult versions of them. And they are going to be, for example, maybe just people who have disappeared because they don't want to be associated with the story anymore, or could be cult members. There's a lot more plot to be developed here in season two. Right. So anyway, very exciting. And it's only two months away. So I'm looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. And we'll be covering it here on the podcast week to week. Until then, we'll be talking about Your Honor. All right. So I, I actually recapped the show in very general terms. I enjoyed this first episode. I thought it was well-structured. It sets up the stakes for the season. But, but I got through the recap in just a few minutes because, you know, it's the beginning of the season. How much speculation could you possibly make? Yeah, not all that much happened. Uh, so maybe before we get to that, did you have anything else you want to talk about? Did you watch the Golden Globes? I did not. I had no idea the Golden Globes were on until <laughs> nobody did. they were probably halfway done. No, I did not watch. But I did <laughs> hear that Better Call Saul did not win any no, awards, which does never seem wins. to be a real shame. It never wins. Yeah. Maybe the Emmys this year will finally give it some due respect. But this is kind of the history of that show. And by the way, the history of Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad did not win all of those awards, except for Cranston, actually. Cranston won pretty early on. But except for Cranston, that show was pretty much, wasn't even getting nominations for some of the other performances and stuff. And then, of course, like kind of the crowning achievement in that final half season, they uh, gave it all these awards. So maybe mm -hmm. the Emmys will finally this year, you know, they broke up the season, I think, intentionally to have half of mm -hmm. it before that cutover, half of it after. I didn't realize that. Okay. But you know what? I'm mm. going to tell you right now that the Emmy Awards are going to be in August or September, whenever they have them. And that's almost a full year after that second season. Right. People I have forgotten. Yes. Yeah. I guarantee you they will get all the nominations and once again, won't win a thing. Mm. Sad, but true. But we do have the new Bob Odekirk show to look forward to, which just got a premiere date on AMC. I think it's uh, coming in just a couple of months. So something else to consider, although it's very different. It's not going to be a crime, thr a crime thriller. So it's a very different genre, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. maybe he'll finally get some respect. <laughs> maybe i mean for someone who started out as it's it feels like basically a character actor right a comedian right skit you know i mean wrote on this Saturday is Live. amazing yep. and yep. for brian cranston as well i mean i remember him from seinfeld i remember him from king of queens malcolm in the middle yeah exactly so like what an evolution and i don't know if anybody knows this just more trivia here to round out the episode but the first time i saw Cranston, I was really knocked out by him, was in an episode of The X-Files. I don't know if you remember this one, Sona, because I know Joel's a big uh, X-Files fan. Yeah, I was off and on with The X-Files. There was an episode where there's uh, a guy who gets into a shootout because apparently he has something happening inside of his head. He believes that he has to keep driving west or he's going to die. Mulder shows up to investigate. He ends up getting taken hostage. And the whole episode is Cranston driving and Mulder, and they're negotiating this thing. And it, it actually ends up being true, right? He gets to, spoiler alert, for an episode of The X-Files from 20 years ago, 25 maybe <laughs> at this point, he makes it to the coast. He can't go any further west. His head blows up, basically. Oh, wow. This is a really incredible performance from Cranston. And uh, once again, he had been just a character actor, done some comedy, like you mentioned on some of these other shows. This is before uh, Malcolm in the Middle, by the way. So he had not landed that role yet. Uh, Fox had... The X-Files, it was the reason that Fox thought about him for Malcolm in the Middle. Sure. An episode like that would make you think that, you know, a hapless father figure should be right. the natural next step. I, I think it just I think it just <laughs> added him to the list of candidates to show up. Definitely not like, well, that's the kind of energy we want in our show. <laughs> 
But more importantly is Vince Gilligan, of course, was one of the head writers and one of the showrunners on the X-Files, especially later in its run. Mm -hmm. And that is where he thought, like he literally was thinking as he was writing the pilot for Breaking Bad, like, I got to get that Cranston guy to play this role. Interesting. There you go. Just that one episode of the X-Files has this long tail uh, culturally. So. And of course, leads us all back to this episode, just to come full circle, to this second season premiere of Your Honor. As you know, I get distracted by the tangents. Yes. That was a body double, do you think, in the prison? The skinny version of him? You know what? I wondered the exact same thing. Very curious. Because they specifically were keeping his head down, but I didn't know if it was supposed to be a shock that it was him or it's because it was a body double. No, then he walks straight at the camera. I would assume, and once again, this is totally outside the scope of this, and I could probably find an article about it somewhere on the internet. One option, they mapped his face onto this body double. The other option, and maybe more likely because of they did a similar thing like in the the uh, um, most re- recent Avengers film where Tony Stark is like emaciated, they simply mm-hmm. shoot the actor and then the AI, like, you know, you manipulate yeah. their body using mm-hmm, the AI. Mm-hmm. And that used to be the type of thing which was incredibly expensive. Sure. Uh, and now it's incredibly cheap. <laughs> to that point, I know you mm. were kind of flummoxed by my sending you this link last week. Yes. Jerry Seinfeld inserted into- Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, right? And there you go. Like that's some a hobbyist at home doing this, speaking of hobbyists, mm-hmm. doing this at home. This Good is point. Not, as one more tangent here. Somebody, a fan, took- Rogue One, speaking of Andor, Andor is basically a prequel to the Rogue One movie. Someone took the Andor footage and they had CGI'd in a young Carrie Fisher Fisher, and some of the other actors from the original Star uh, Star Wars films. And they described that this is only six years ago, that it took something like $20 million for those few scenes where they CGI those characters in. And if you look at them, it looks pretty bad. And that's six years ago. <laughs> Not money well spent. <laughs> well, I mean, it was the best they could do at the time. Right. People, right. I remember people being impressed by it, but you know, it looks so fake when you watch it now. It's available on Disney Plus if anybody wants to check it out. More importantly, if you want to check it out, go to YouTube and a search regarding CGI from Rogue One because a fan went and did the same thing using you know their own tools on their computer and they have like side by side and it looks incredible it looks completely photorealistic so here's somebody at home doing a better job that used to cost just half a decade ago tens of millions of dollars so all that is to say that you can probably just you know tell uh, the ai now to be like make him 25 pounds lighter mm-hmm, and it'll mm-hmm, just do it for mm-hmm. you and uh, anyway, that's where we've come with technology. Really old school way of doing this. You would only shoot him from behind. And then right, exactly. you'd get yes. him, make him step onto the scale and then you would cut to his face. Exactly. And then you, you'd cut to his back and it would be all emaciated again. Mm-hmm. That's the old school way of doing it. Right. And honestly, maybe more convincing because now we're talking about the technology rather than, <laughs> rather yes. than the point of the scene, right? So Fair. <laughs> Moving on. I did think this was a good setup for the second season. Rosie Perez from Hackensack, New Jersey. Exactly. I'm fond of Rosie Perez from Hackensack, New Jersey, and I'm (laughs) fond of New Jersey. That works out. Um, I like the way they developed the storyline with Eugene, Kofi's brother. Well, I mean, that might be the end of the storyline, possibly, I guess. Spoiler alert, it's not. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like a lot of work to put in to then never hear about this again. So... The, is she Big Mo? Is that her name? Big Mo, yeah. And Little Mo, her son, yeah. Right. Certainly an interesting character who seems capable of all sorts of things. And bringing back the election and that yep. character, Charlie, Charlie, I think mm-hmm. his name is. Yep. My resolution, by the way, for the podcast is to be better about using character <laughs> <Characters> names <laughs> rather than actor names. Yes. Because I'm <laughs> really awful about that, especially when it's a very well-known actor. I thought that was nice, the way they're looping that back in. The previously on could have been a little bit more comprehensive for me. The recording. Right. Did we know about this recording? I can't remember. I th- it's in the flashback that I think we see the recording. Was occurring. it? Okay. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I just yeah. missed it. Yeah. We definitely don't see that. The finale of last season, just because I've seen it more, yeah, more recently, much more than, recently than I did. It, it literally ends on the son getting shot in the neck and Cranston right. basically applying pressure to his neck. We don't even right. see the son explicitly die. We don't actually have notification that he's officially dead until this uh, episode. I mean, there was that kind of wound would be very hard. To yes. Yes. But I, I, 
It's one of those things that, you know, just as a, someone who watches TV, it's one of those things that I'm pretty sure we want the sun to die here, but we'll leave the door open to crack just in case, mm-hmm. like depending on what the writers come up with next season, right? But they decided, hey, you know what? This mm-hmm. guy went to make the Wednesday TV show. <laughs> he's, he's not coming <laughs> back. For, and he's like 30 years old now, so he probably can't pull off being a 17-year-old <laughs> anymore. Not that he could pull it off in the first place. But. I was never all that fond of the Fiona character, to mm-hmm. be honest. Okay. But I did like this reveal with her I liked her baby. here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was good. I am afraid that this um, Mrs. Baxter, because I can't remember her first name and I'm trying to use the character names. Okay, (laughs) Gina. I'm afraid that this is going to go a little bit too over the top. Oh, as opposed to the very subtle season one? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm almost getting tired of this Lady Macbeth trope. It's too much. I agree. From Ozark and then Mm -hmm. here. And then I feel like I've seen it somewhere else recently as well of, you know, the guy actually isn't all that bad, but it's the woman right. behind him that yeah. is, you know, the real evil one that's driving all of this. And I mean, it's interesting. It's a good idea. Right. I just feel like I'm seeing it. It's not it's not um, unique or innovative at this right. point. I mean, I like the dynamic, but I'm afraid it's just a little too much, but we'll see. I completely agree with that. I find that to be all the things you're complaining about were things that were my critiques of season one. So I guess they're just more glaring now. Right. I just had seen season one longer ago. Longer ago, right. But you know, I was ambivalent about it. (laughs) Yes. But I did. I enjoyed it. Like I said, I binged the whole thing. So I, and that's why I came back for more. <laughs> but I, the w- one main point I wanted to take away from what you just said was I find that to be very lazy. I feel like for like a decade now with this type of prestige television, the way that they've been like, let's write an interesting female character is to automatically yes. be like, she's the one who's really pulling the strings. Right. And that's yes. basically all they can come up with. Even variations on that are pretty lazy. I don't even see... Uh, situations where, for example, it could be like she internally, she thinks she's the good guy and she doesn't even realize that she's the one who's actually pulling the, the, the strings, like making some more ambivalence there is, is she good or is she bad? Does she realize she's the bad person? Right. Exactly. I mean, that kid had been home from prison for like, yeah, exactly. uh, well, I guess they did establish a decent amount of time had passed and that Fiona has a baby. You know, she's already in his ear about <laughs> yep. like the. You know, I I don't know. I like that worked out great last time. Exactly. <laughs> he literally like, just he got just, dumped. <laughs> yes, he just rolled out of the car, hog tied up or whatever. Right. And she's like, we got to go back. It's like, what? What do you? What? Strike three. You're out, lady. Yeah, just you know, chill for a little bit, which is what her husband seems to be yeah, trying to exactly. say as well. Right. So yeah, like that kind of thing. It just seems like maybe he could just recover from being a hostage. <laughs> And he just got like evaded prison time after being released from prison like a week before, like maybe not get him arrested again. Like so. Right. (laughs) Yeah. A few weeks at home first, you know, play the long game, (laughs) but still some interesting stuff happening. I'm curious to see how it turns out. Also, I'm sorry. What was going on with that rodeo, though? Is that a real thing that (laughs) they do? (laughs) Yes, there is. Uh, By the way, I recorded my sister to talk about the menu, the movie on HBO to round out this episode because it was so short. So Mm -hmm. that's coming after this. And literally, (laughs) I'm like, let's talk about the menu. And my sister's like, first of all, let's talk about the rodeo. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, I uh, spent a few minutes on that in my recap as well. It's crazy. But yes, Angola Prison in Louisiana does have a prisoner rodeo. It's been going on for, I don't know, 80 years, something like that. It's open to the public. They have them in Texas as well. This is like a tradition here in the United States. It's like gladiator days or something. Yes, shocking, but true. (laughs) Truly bananas to me, but okay. Anyway, I interjected (laughs) just because I didn't want to forget if somehow that was not going to come up later in our conversation. I wanted to make sure I got it out there. Now, please go on with your questions. I have not looked at the trend lines on Twitter or on Google (laughs) about the Angola rodeo, but I am pretty sure it's about 1,000 times higher than than a couple of days ago. Holy cow. So the couple of questions I had for you, one if you can speculate on it, Olivia's overall plan, the Rosie Perez character's overall plan is because she seems to have had some idea in her mind all the way back when she's like, I, I want you to bury this testimony. He's going to be in jail for tax evasion, not right. for all of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure it'll flesh out over the course of the season. But if you have any ideas as to what her plan might be, and then specifically to that point, by the way, Uh, You know, as a lawyer, once again, you know, caveat (laughs) that you uh, don't practice law down in Louisiana, but (laughs) 
is that legitimate, do you think, that the prosecutor could, for example, want to do one prosecution? That was all very hand-wavy to me. I mean, she makes a a throwaway comment about the transcripts being sealed Mm -hmm. that I got very hung up on because I was trying to figure out the mechanics of this. And the only thing I can think of is that he actually was prosecuted for all the things that he did actually do. Right. But then they sealed the entire record and somehow have represented that he's in jail for tax evasion. I guess he would have never gone to trial, right? Because I was about to say, I'm pretty sure the Baxters would be very curious about the trial and get as much information from, you know, from cops. I'm sure they have informants inside of there. They would probably- Yeah, maybe he took a deal. Some breadcrumbs. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe they did a deal where it all happened behind the scenes and there's no open testimony at all. I mean, you can seal a courtroom in any case. Yeah. There's also that possibility, but- they definitely didn't get into the weeds yeah. about the mechanics of how this happened. So yeah, that was a little bit strange. Um, and now to, to get to your question, I guess this is partly what the season will be about. And I could see them painting her as a character that has had a master plan all along. And, right. you know, it's all going to come together, even when it looks like it's going off the rails, but I mean, I I guess she plans to use him to get in with the Baxter family and he's going to be like an informant. What do you think? I mean, that is, I think, is definitely going to be the case. Somehow she wants to get him to come back into the fold. The grandchild, and let's talk about the coming up in this season, scenes that come up at the very end, because in those scenes, he definitely finds out about the grandchild. Obviously, that's not going to be a surprise to anybody. And you see Gina is like, I do not want that man around our family at all. And uh, maybe the dad is a little more conflicted. Fia is probably doing whatever she wants to do in the background anyway. But there's no way that Rosie Perez at that point where she's saying we're going to seal these records, she couldn't possibly know about the baby at that point. So that's not the the leverage point she thinks she has. So anyway, yeah, I'm very curious to know, like, what was her plan? Is it well thought out? Mm -hmm, You know, it could mm -hmm. be hand wavy too, right? It could just be like as generic as, well, you have an in with them because you we're in cahoots and now we know that. Right. But I would hope that the show has a clever plan because there's nothing more fun in these type of crime shows, obviously, is to see the plan either perfectly executed for me. And this is just my personal taste. I'm sure you will agree with this. I like when either you know exactly what the plan is and you see execute perfectly, like you watch like Ocean's Eleven or something, Mm -hmm. or when you know exactly what the plan is supposed to be and then you see everything falling apart. Like that is like this kind of Freuden of seeing everything go wrong and you know exactly how it can go wrong and then it doesn't. People stepping into all these little snares. Did you have any recommendations? Anything you caught during the holidays since the last time we talked? Any any recommendations? Uh, it's an ABC show mm-hmm. about different parenting styles. The Parent Test. This show is very interesting to me as a parent. I think it might be interesting to non-parents as well. I've only seen about one and a half episodes of it. I'm not sure how many are available. But essentially, they have collected a broad range of parents with a broad range of parenting styles, a very diverse group. They put each of these styles to a test to see how children respond in the same situation when they are parented differently. So, for example, uh, one episode I saw involved getting your kid to jump off the high dive. Mm -hmm. Another example was having your child read a paper map to direct you someplace. So... The different styles are kind of like um, one of them, I think, was called intense parenting, kind of Mm -hmm. a tiger parenting. Mm -hmm. One of them was called routine parenting, like emphasizing laying out the day and sticking to a routine. One of them was, you know, of course, free range parenting, um, things like that. So I don't know how much this really bears out scientifically, right? Because (laughs) everyone has different personalities. Everyone responds differently in different situations. You've got cameras filming people where you normally don't. So I don't know how scientifically sound this is, but certainly it is interesting to see how different people respond in different situations and the reactions they get from their kids and the the way um, it all plays out. So it's been holding my interest. I think it's an interesting social experiment. It's hosted by Alexandra Wentworth, who is George Stephanopoulos's wife, is, mm-hmm. I think, primarily how I know her, which is also, I think, a comedian and an author. 
And she does a nice job here, just kind of moderating everything. Something interesting to check out if you're into that type of thing. I have a question for you. That sounds very interesting to me, given my limited time to watch my shows versus watching shows with the family, like a movie that we can all participate in. And by the way, we watched Puss in Boots, the new one, and uh, I thought it was actually really good. And Charlotte also enjoyed it. So a mild recommendation. I mean, if you don't love family films, like if you don't have kids in the house, this is not the kind of transcendent Pixar uh, movie slash anybody should watch this. It's great for you. Soul enriching. (laughs) Definitely not that, (laughs) but it's clever. It's, you know, we all laughed at it. It's It's not an annoying family watch. So I do recommend that. But anyway, going back to my original question, is this something I can watch with her? Is she going to be engaged by it? Or is this really informative to adults and the kids are just kind of like, uh, I don't get this, or it's even scary to them, (laughs) the idea of being parented by different people? You know, I haven't watched it with my child, but I could see doing it. I think that would probably make for some interesting conversations, actually. Okay, good. Because maybe that will be something we try to watch together. We watch things like Blown Away, like the the glass blowing competition on Mm -hmm, Netflix, mm -hmm. which is great, by the way. I enjoy it. But, you know, once again, for family viewing, uh, while I'm on my phone. (laughs) I've heard one that's great for family viewing. I have not seen it, but I think it's on Netflix as well. Is is it Cake? Yes, that's yeah, we've watched all of that. (laughs) We've seen like (laughs) those. We've seen The Floor is Lava. (laughs) We've seen Is It Cake? We've seen, uh, what's the one with, um, oh, Nailed It. Have you seen Nailed It? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. It is funny. I mean, it does get less funny over time, although the kids will continue to enjoy it. But it is basically people who are not great at baking. They're like casual bakers. As usual with these shows, season one is especially funny because they're like, you're going to come on to bake. And these people are probably fine at baking a cake, a simple cake, but they're making this a really complex. (laughs) Of course, they come out absolutely terrible. Uh, And it was more funny when you saw these people earnestly thinking they're competing as opposed to you get to season two, season three, everybody's there to do a bad job, right? In on the joke. It gets, yeah, it's, it's more funny when they were not in on the joke. Um, But yeah, maybe I'll check that out. Maybe we'll check that out together. And by, to to your point you said you've watched like one and a half episodes. I think it's only been on the air for like three weeks. So you're probably like one episode. Great. I'm not far behind yet. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. We'll touch base again next week when the new episode drops. Sounds good. Okay. Bye. Is that going to fit everyone? Yeah, easily. 12 customers total. How do they turn a profit? 12.50 a head, that's how. What are we eating, a Rolex? It's one of his classics. You have to try the mouthfeel of the mignonette. Please don't say mouthfeel. Tonight will be madness. Welcome. We'll endeavor to make your evening as pleasant as possible. Welcome to Hawthorne. Here we are family. Yes, we harvest, we ferment, we gel. They gel. We gel. He's not just a chef, he's a storyteller. The game is trying to guess what the overarching theme of the entire meal is going to be. You won't know till the end. Who are you? I am Margot. Why do you care? I have to know if you're with us or with them. This menu. The pictures, they're of us. This guest list. How do they get these? It's not good. This entire evening. Jesus Christ. This is just theater. It's stagecraft. We're leaving now. Has been painstakingly planned. This is real, isn't it? What the hell is going on? We now offer you a 45-second head start. Okay, 45 seconds starts now. This is what you're paying for. Get out of my way. It's all part of the menu. It's okay. No, we're gonna die today. Yes, we are. Happy birthday to you. You told them it was my birthday? Seemed funny about three hours ago. So Celia, I just recapped your honor on this very episode of the show. You've been watching a lot of different things. Maybe we start off with the menu, which I think, if I'm correct still, is I think the most popular thing on streaming right now. Well, first we have to talk about the 
Prison Rodeo. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just have to just get some insight on that because does that happen? Oh, yes. In, yes. They I, have I, prison rodeos where- in, in my recap of- Bulls. Yes, in, in my, in my, including the poker games. In my recap of Your Honor, I specifically mentioned the most disturbing <laughs> moment in the whole entire show has nothing to do with the plot, has to do with the fact that we still have in Angola prison in Louisiana, which is where this is supposed to be taking place, and also in Texas and in other states as well, where we still- <laughs> <laughs> like gladiator days or something, put prisoners in front of the I bulls. thought it was a dream. I said, is this a dream sequence? He's going to wake up and be like, oh. This is a little social commentary in the fact that that's right, people. <laughs> that's entertainment. We still have this in the United States at this Who very moment. Who goes to this? Like your mom and like, are, are it's they open to the public. They've just oh, made it, it open. To, yeah. In the past like 30 years or so, they've made it open to the public. That's a fun night. Yeah, they or, sell out. What is yeah. that? A nice afternoon yeah. Yeah. with it's, the prison rope. Just to see who gets like run over by by a bull. Like, I mean, you could die. Yeah, but they give them a little bit of prize money. So that's all that matters. Okay. All right. <laughs> I just wanted to get that out of the way. We can go and talk about Move the menu the now. That is probably the only interesting thing. <laughs> well, no, I take that back. I, I actually like this episode of Your Honor, if you want to talk about it a little bit. I thought it was a good setup for the season. And I'm interested to see what direction it goes in. And like some of these loose ends that I was like, well, what's, what about the wife's murder? What happened with this? And they're like, even in the previously on, they just skipped all that stuff, which I guess it just means that it's not coming back this season. A lot of that stuff's being dumped, which is fine. Because I think the main core plot point is these two men are on a collision course. It feels a little like Breaking Bad. And I know it's the yeah. same actor. So maybe that's what's making me have that vibe when I watch this? I mean, I think potentially that's the appeal there. Although I do think it's different because unlike Breaking Bad, where Walter is this kind of genius who turns out to be a criminal mastermind as well, and his hubris, you know, he makes a lot of screw-ups along the way, which is where the comedy comes from. But he's also pretty clever in the end and always underestimated by these criminals. In this regard, I don't think we're going to see that play out. I think he, you know, he's literally suicidal in this episode and now he has something to fight for once he discovers the least surprising plot twist that, that he has a grandson now. And of course, I think he's going to be motivated by that and also to protect Charlie, right? Charlie did nothing, but he, Charlie didn't even know that someone had died. He was just like, I need my car to disappear. Charlie goes, okay, I'm going to help you out. You're my brother. And now Charlie's whole life could blow up because of the stupid favor he did for him. You know, you would do anything to protect your kids. So, right. I think that's where I the see motivation. Yeah. Is. Yeah. I agree. I think that's a good motivator for sure. Especially think about it like, you know, if he decided to kill himself off and just be done with this the suicide by bull uh, this week, theoretically, his grandkid could end up raised to be what the next mob boss. Like, that obviously is something he definitely wants to avoid. And are they going to accept this kid? Is I think he in they danger? will. You think no, they he, will? I think so. Because think about it the scenes we have between. Jimmy and his daughter, and briefly with the mom, the mom's probably more upset about this whole situation, but the dad and daughter seem to be very, very close. He still she seems to be hiding from her how involved he is with this criminal organization, but it's not like they don't know she had a kid. Of course they know she has a kid. <laughs> you know, like, so I think that you know this is all past that moment in time. So I think that they've come to terms with it. Maybe they don't know because my kids had a pet in their room before I found it. So <laughs> I think a baby's a little bit more hard to hide than a cat. You think? I liked it. I like where it's going. Yeah, I did too. I I, I actually just <laughs> wanted to have this conversation because my recap was like 10 minutes long. I'm like, that's what happened. <laughs> There's really not much to <laughs> delve into other than the, the situation with the prison rodeos in this country. But other than that, there's not too much to dig into. Even if you're not into the show, which I can't imagine someone not being into the show. I think it's like really edge of your seat kind of I, I feel like tension when I'm watching it I love the show I would watch it for the prison rodeo who, who <laughs> how do they get picked for this is it a lottery are they like oh me me I want to do it I think they, I don't honestly know how it works I you know I'm sure there's a documentary about it somewhere and, and there's YouTube got, videos yeah. of like you know the actual <laughs> annual rodeo so you can check out the YouTube videos if you want to but I'm so I'm sure, doing I'm sure that. there's some yeah check out the Wikipedia article on that for sure if you need more information I just find yeah. the whole thing. Ten minutes me. just talking about the prison rodeo. <laughs> That's the it only was thing I that fascinating. That was the only thing I really delved into at all, to be honest with you. Wow. All right, back to the menu though. <laughs> 
it's kind of one of the stories of the year that while theater going has really not come back, I mean, obviously you have the massive success of Avatar, you have the massive success of the Spider-Man, No Way Home movie, and of course, Top Gun this year, which was another phenomena. But aside from that, it's not been a great year or people have not really returned to the theaters in, in the, the way they, they had before. But one really bright spot in all of this is that horror has become hugely popular. And it seems to not only be being successful in movie theaters itself, but then also at home, a lot of home viewing of these films that really don't break out in movie theaters, but then become hits at home. And kind of in between both of these is this movie, The Menu, which came out, I think, in October. And not only was it a success in theaters, I think it made around $40 million in the US alone and more overseas on a very modest budget. But now, of course, it's on HBO Max and very similar to Barbarian, another film that was modestly successful in theaters and then really took off once it hit the home market. I think this is the number one streaming title right now. So maybe a perfect time to catch up on this film. And I wanted to talk to you about this. I, I teased it last week in regards to the movie Megan, which you're about to see as well, which is another film, even more so, a huge phenomena. It's already made some $40 million just in one week. It's probably going to make like $100 million on a very modest budget. It is another satire, just like the menu is. And I kind of missed it in the fact that these are both, I think, solid films, but I don't understand the critical and popular uh, adulation for it. So this movie was, uh, the, I think, the first film, feature film, directed by Mark Millad, who mostly has directed episodes of Succession. So he, you know, speaking of making fun of the super rich, there's a, another through line between the menu and Succession itself. But what this film is in general is these mostly rich people being taken by ferry to this restaurant. By the way, there are restaurants like this. Uh, the writer of the movie was inspired by being on one of these ferried restaurant experiences where they go to the island and they eat everything that grows on the island. And this was, there's actually one in uh, Seattle, I, be, I believe as well, but he, his experience was in like Finland or somewhere like that, somewhere in Europe. He was thinking, well, what, what are the bad things that can happen if we are isolated on this island? Basically what happens is these different rich people end up eating at this me uh, having this meal by some of the, um, and the chef, this uh, celebrity chef is played by Rafe Fiennes playing Chef Slawick, 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 and um, and like some of the guests that are here. Maybe the next lead is Anya Taylor Joy playing Margot, uh, Nicholas Holt, her date playing Tyler, and just other recognizable faces here as well. Maybe like John Leguizamo for one, uh, Judith Light uh, in a in a small role, but just surprising to see her here again. I like the Hannibal references. I think that uh, what what Rafe is Fiennes. his name? Rafe. It's spelled Ralph, but it's Rafe. Yeah, Rafe. Oh, okay. I always get confused saying his name. So Rafe does such a really amazing job at being this yes. chef guy. He's incredible. Yes. That, that for me, I didn't really get the hoopla around this film. I thought that the, uh, we'll get into it in spoilers, but, but I want to get your review, non-spoiler review. I thought the satire was kind of obvious, although there are some funny moments, but the one standout here, and it's not Anya Taylor-Joy. I really like her. She does a good job, but she didn't really impress me that much compared to absolutely Ray Fiennes is incredible as this chef. They're really the reason to watch this movie is just this incredible performance it gives. Let me just to wrap up the plot there. So they're all here at this very elaborate meal that he presents, which apparently is his modus operandi. That's when people go there to have this. Uh, once again, something that happens in some of these high-end restaurants where all the plates have actual stories behind them. And the chef does his big presentation. So it's obviously a satire of this high-end eatery world as well. So all really well done, beautifully photographed and, and um, presented. The food is all beautiful to look at, even when it's supposed to be satirical, really well directed. And of course, there's nefarious things going about on this island. And I will not go into details because we don't want to spoil anything at this moment. But before we get into spoilers, what was your general opinion of the, of the film? I think it works because everyone is a form of a satire, like deeply. If you were to take somebody's stereotypical personality because they work at a specific job, they have brought all these people together and these people are the embodiment of this ridiculously obnoxious behavior already. The entitlement is on everyone except for- Margo. Yes, Margot. So 
I guess it works that way. I mean, I was interested in seeing how they would develop these personalities that are so really satirical. And then you don't really like anyone. I don't even know if I liked right. the girl. Margot, yeah. I, I'm not sure because the only person I liked was the yeah. chef. And I'm not even supposed to like the chef. I just liked them because he was running the show and clearly pretty smart and torturing these people. He's feeding them things that like would not be able to fill them up, even though he says that he has measured it in a way that they can just keep eating course after course after course. His entire reason for having them there is pretty fascinating and how he has somehow got his workers to a position where it's almost like a cult. They worship yes. him. They'll do mm -hmm. anything for him. Yes. I don't, however, he got them to do that also and to go along with his possibly more than one crazy scheme because there's no way he woke up and this is what he decided to do today. So he had been planning this for months. So I found him fascinating. And for that reason, I was curious about what led him here. Like, who was he before this? Everyone else is a satire. So I found it interesting. <laughs> I don't know if I loved it, though. I agree. I, I didn't love it at all. <laughs> and I uh, I would recommend it, mostly because I think that Ray Fiennes gives a great performance. I'm a big fan of Anna Taylor-Joy, by the way. We rec we uh, reviewed Thoroughbreds on here, which I think is great. And everybody should track that down. A very little scene film that I'd recommend to everybody. And of course, she's not. She's been in the Queen's Gambit, and she's you know she's become a very popular actress in the past few years. But I think she's kind of once again. It's not only that I think she's a little bit bland here. I think everybody is. It's not really her fault. I feel like all these characters are such straw men, like you said. It's almost like they're so stereotypical that there's no meat on their bones. There's they're just a stereotype, and that is a little flat. But another great performance, I think here is also like the maitre d', I think she would be called, I'm not sure exactly, but with the main server, I guess, Hong Chow, who is so great. Like when she's talking to those tech bros and she's like so antagonistic from the very beginning. And like, you know, of course she knows that bad things are gonna come to them, but she seems to, speaking of like being a cult member, she is like the lead cult, me cult member, right? She's probably more dedicated to this mission than Ray Fiennes himself is. And I thought she was uh, great. But yeah, so other than those performances, which I think are terrific, the rest of it is the satire is so on the nose Going back to what you're talking about, like these people being such ciphers or such stereotypes, I think that the point of the film, I think, is as any kind of creative person, whether you're a writer who wrote the script or a director or an actor, we don't funnel through this creative process of being a chef, but a storyteller also, I mean, specifically in this case. I think what they're trying to say is these are the different types of fandom you can have, right? There's the person who goes to the restaurant all the time because they think it's like the ritzy thing to do. Like they go there because they're rich. It's the place to be seen, but then they can't remember anything they've ever eaten there. And then there's the Nicholas Holt character who's like a real fan. He knows how all the dishes are prepared. It's like, he's like a fanboy, like a Marvel fanboy or something. Who's always talking about like, this one's better and that one's worse. And you know, what are the casting rumors or whatever? And then he's just like, okay, well, you know, you have so many opinions, you do this, go ahead, you try it. And of course he completely fails at trying to do it. And of course you have these in entitled tech bros where they're like, I'm going to have my food prepared differently because I got money. You know, I got connections. You got to do what I tell you to do. And it's as if uh, this is all like an F you to all of them. <laughs> Very self-destructive in that way. But I think the reason that Ray Fiennes works so well is because unlike all these other characters, you can imagine like a whole biography of what drove him to this point and how he loved to do this at some point, how this has become so toxic. He's the only character that I believe, even though, you know, some of the things that happen in the, the film are obviously totally over the top. He's like, you know, he's the only real person in this whole entire film. And I think that's a limitation of the film for me anyway. So at this point where yeah, it, there's honestly, <laughs> whatever you think this movie is going into it, you're not going to, this is not barbarian. You're not going to have surprises here. This is exactly what you expect to get. And as a matter of fact, there are no twists, which is another thing that I think maybe I walked in knowing was I was going to get, and I didn't get any twists, but there is a few things we can spoil here. So we are going to go into spoilers now. So if you haven't watched the menu, go check it out. It's on HBO Max, if any of this sounds interesting to you. If you don't plan to watch it and you want to listen to the spoilers, hang in there, but spoiler warning in effect right now. So because I didn't care about these people as... Yeah, I wasn't invested in them. I wasn't like in love with them when I'm watching a film in 
all of a sudden I am just worried about, I was not worried about any of these people and they make it very clear what's going to happen and what the plan is. And I know they're going to get chased and tortured and you start to see it pretty soon when like, right. What is it like 10 minutes in or something? Um, so Wait, I like found that- no, that's actually pretty late in the game. The, we don't know that things are going to go officially bad until maybe halfway through the movie when the one chef kills himself, right? Shoots himself in the head because he'll never be as good as a uh, chef Slowick. Then even then people are saying like, this is a joke. It's part of the presentation. Some people are not taking it seriously. Some people are trying to get scared. But then yes, shortly thereafter, I think after the very next dish, <laughs> they're like, you guys can run for your lives <laughs> if you want to. And then you know yeah, things are going to go bad. He chops off that guy's finger and things start happening pretty soon, like after they get there. And because I don't care if they kill them. I don't care if they all get killed. So now I'm watching this as a game. Like, is anyone going to survive? How are they going to kill them? You know, I'm not horrified. I just feel like it's a game. I'm not invested in any of these people as people, except for Ray Fiennes. Right. He's the only only real person. I literally am like, wow, what's going on with him? How is he going to kill everyone? Like I said, even though I love the Elsa character too, you know that she wants to die. So it's like that there's no, when she dies, it's like, I'll miss having the performance in the movie. But, and then she dies pretty late in the film. Even that's not upsetting because it's like, sure, <laughs> that was her plan from the start. I mean, it's a fun movie. There's no depth to it. You're not going to care really what happens to these people because they're all such jerks and <laughs> they're not likable. You don't know how they're going to expire exactly, so you're you wonder about that. And there are funny parts, like when he's yeah. bringing out these ridiculous. Some of <laughs> <Yes>. the dishes <laughs> yes. were ridiculous. Yes, I agree. Like they're famous for bread, but they're only he, he's giving them like drops. <laughs> you get no bread. The breadless of bread stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's like drops. Yeah. That's one of the best. That's one of the best jokes in the whole film. That <laughs> they're famous for their bread, and he will not give them bread. <laughs> yeah, he clearly doesn't like them. And then he puts pictures, yeah. incriminating photos of them, like lasered on burritos or something. Yeah. yeah, he obviously doesn't like them. And he has cultivated who he wants on his island, right. like who he wants to do away with. Right. And he is not happy that that fanboy brought the wrong girl. Exactly. Yes. So yeah, Nicholas Holt's character from your favorite show, The uh, the Great. Uh, I he, love the great. <laughs> he brought someone else to dinner, ruining Rafe Fine's plan, which ironically, of course, he's like, well, you still have to die. <laughs> Everyone's going to die. It's just like, do you die with them or do you die with us? Do you, the, the makers and the takers. Uh, I do want to touch on one thing before we move on to other parts of the story. I think that one of the things that's redeeming in the film, that it's not just purely a satire of the rich, because the chef, like you said, a lot of these dishes are ridiculous on their face, the culture of this kind of high-end eating. And not only that, his rationale for killing these people off. Some of these people, like those tech bros, are look like a bunch of entitled douchebags. And Nicholas Holt is like extremely toxic fanboy. But then John Leguizamo, as the actor, has to die because he made a bad movie. <laughs> or the other assistant has to die because she didn't have to pay for her student Debt, like I mean, th- those are some pretty pathetic re- rationales for killing these people off at that point. Did he need to fill the tables because he's very firm about like how many people can be in the room, how many people can eat together? It has to be like I guess two people for specific tables, and that's why he ended up the fanboy ended up bringing the wrong girl. But then right. go into right. that. I mean, she's not just the wrong girl; she is a sex worker, right? I think there's commentary there too. She's one of them in his estimation because she's performing that she's enjoying providing the service to these people, right? And so are they. That's the thing that's killing them spiritually in his estimation. I think there's more satire there than that, but that's what kind of puts her on his side rather than the side of these people who use other people. She's one of the people who services these other people because that's what the work she can get. It's odd though that they picked her profession to be a sex worker. She could have been any wrong girl. You're right. She could have been any other type of, you know, whatever, just someone who was a secretary at his office. But I think they wanted to use her also as a trigger to another 
weird story that the other millionaire who's hired her in the past, but then that guy who's obviously a total lech and gross, maybe even um, has molested his own daughter, his wife dies too. Like what did his wife do <laughs> other than get cheated on? You know, I mean, maybe she turned, looked the other way while this stuff was happening, you could argue, but they're reading a lot into their relationship if they assume that they know this about this couple. <laughs> the more you dig into like whether these people deserve what they get or not, the more questionable it all becomes. There's another part of this too that you have to consider that he even calls out at the end. It's like, if you really wanted to escape, you would have escaped by now. Maybe this is part of the rationale that all these people really want to die. Like they are all self-destructive people in some extent, and they just sit there and take this. But once again, she is not, right? She comes up with a pretty clever way actually to get out of that situation, I would say. I think that people like it because it's fun. I, I, I'd be interested to have someone really explain like what it is specifically that they found so fascinating about this. That's the, my real question. A, the critical success of this, but also the popular success of this. Audiences have really embraced this film. I don't get it. Like, it's not that I think it's a terrible film. It's not that it has bad performances. You say it's just fun. I do not find this film fun, <laughs> to be totally honest. It's fun, though, when you don't like someone and you're just like, oh, I wish this would happen. And now there's a whole room of these people and yes. he doesn't like them and he's gonna, just going to he's going to off them. Yeah. I do feel bad. Why is he killing off his poor staff? Because they love him so much and they have bought into his because they're going to die too. So it's very odd. What's the point of this movie? <laughs> so that's my that's my question to you. <laughs> yeah, I'm no, trying I, to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I understand what they're trying to say. It's very, very obvious what they're trying to say. I just don't there's no reason that you can't have this film not saying this film should be banned or anything. I'm just surprised by its success and why it's been caught on. Uh, unless, like you said, maybe it's just like, hey, I know really douchey people like that. F them. They should uh, to just be killed. So I'm like, all right, maybe that's functional. Just kill them. And there's way more fun films, by the way. If it, And I'll make a couple of recommendations right now because you know I love making recommendations. If you want to see a film that is saying F the rich and is a lot of fun, go check out Ready or Not, which is this very, very fun, definitely a horror film about these rich people that have this particular ritual where every time there's a new member of their family via wedding, uh, they have to pick a game to play collectively. And the game you do not want to play is hide and seek. That is a really good movie. Yes, it's a very that fun movie, which kind of reminds me of this movie, had yes. me at the edge of my seat. Yes. I was really worried about the people I liked in that movie. I'm like, oh yeah. my God, what's going to happen? I did not feel like that with this movie. Yes. So that my, my recommendation, if you want to see something fun, a horror film that's a lot of fun legitimately, plays with some of these same themes, and you get lots of revenge on those really annoying archetypes of rich people, then check out Ready or Not. It's really, really fun and has some great performances. And the other thing I'd recommend is if you want a satire that really touches on all of these themes of how you lose sight of something that you were passionate about and how that kind of gets corrupted by society and by expectations and by your own distancing from whatever your passion is, and it's specifically about food, is go check out the movie Pig with Nicolas Cage, which is an incredible movie, like one of the absolute best movies from last year and just features a really, truly great performance by him. That's a very serious movie with a very, very emotional performance there at the center of it. But it also is a satire of this ridiculous high-end culinary world as well. And that's, that's a, not a feel-good movie, though. That's I, I don't movie. think that, I think that is a feel-good movie. I I disagree. I think it's a feel-good movie because in the end, you know, you basically have this uh, conflict resolved purely with. I mean, I think this really beautiful. Minor spoilers, everybody. Minor spoilers for a Pig if you haven't seen it. But there's a film that constantly sets you up for maybe this is going to be uh, a violent or. Uh, a scary film in some way. It's almost marketed like it was a horror movie or something. And that it's the final resolution, uh, this uh, rift between these people in the in the film, I won't go into who they are, that you basically resolve everything with a meal. This meal is so powerful, so resonant that it heals this rift. So I think it's great. I think it's about someone reconnecting with the thing they love with. So I, I don't you, see it but as- But it's downbeat, for example. Like I would consider that movie, I loved that movie, Oh, that's a by serious way, movie. That's a serious I movie. I love I'm, downbeat movies. Yes. <laughs> Downbeat's my thing. The Menu is an upbeat movie. I found it upbeat. I didn't think it was great, but I yeah. still was like, you know, this is kind of fun. 
I, I would like somebody to do awful things to those awful people. If that's the plot, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, Pig was downbeat, but a much better movie. I still disagree with you there. I thought that Pig was, I felt very moved in a very positive way by seeing Pig. I, I, would, I did not find it depressing. As a matter of fact, I actually would disagree with you. I find this film, The Menu, because it's a little hollow in the, in the end, I found it to be a little more cynical in just what it represented in a way. Uh, but I do agree that Pig is a more serious film for sure. And if you do want a romp, like the thing that The Menu was not for me, but that it promised to be, once again, I say, check out Ready or Not. But it does feature some beautiful design work. The plating of the food and the presentation of the food is great. Some of the satire of this ridiculous stories that he does around the story are very fun. And uh, his performance is incredible. Terrific, terrific performance in a movie that I thought was pretty mediocre beyond that. So that's where we left the conversation. I found it mostly lacking in any kind of surprise, and the satire was pretty much on the nose. Your mileage may vary. And if you have a different opinion, please let us know. Need some introduction at gmail.com. Definitely a great performance by Ray Fiennes, no doubt about that. And just one more reminder, expect to see another episode on Monday of our podcast covering the first episode of this highly anticipated and so far very well-reviewed The Last of Us HBO series. Talk to you soon.